Welcome to the Reflect On podcast, where we embark on inspiring conversations filled with truth, vulnerability, and, well, anything else that'll help us learn, grow, and live better lives. I'm your host, Kevin P. Murphy. Thank you so much for embarking on this reflection journey with me today. Now let's get right into it. This is part one of a two-part mini-series with Adik Chopra. Adik Chopra is an introspective powerhouse who had the traditional path to success ready for him in his early 20s after graduating school. But instead of taking those traditional routes, Adik changed his career paths, cities, and mindset in ways that cultivated his purest forms of life. Whether it's interaction with formerly incarcerated individuals for assisted re-emergence into our world, inspiring the youth of today in innovative ways through his work with the Knowledge Society, or TKS, or creating the life that he wants for him, his family, and his potential coaching practice, Attic is constantly tactful in how he approaches his life by design. But as he describes, these pursuances are perpetual in nature and can be impossible without the ability to look inward. In this episode, he reflects on the seed of awareness and how it requires daily cultivation for ultimate progress. As well, we discuss the friction between curiosity and fear and a unique way to consider your life's experiences. Attic then reflects on how the ego's craving for stability can create constant fear, but that one must search for and face that fear and mental baggage in order to move forward. He then comments on his beliefs on absolution-based thinking, on how the exponential lenses of life can cause us to see things unclearly, and how perhaps the ultimate goal of life is to continuously remove those lenses. This is a fantastic two-part series and a great start to it. I truly think you're going to love this first part. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy this episode with Attic Chopra. Okay, so... Well, I want to hear from you, man. What about me? Well, last time we talked, like in depth, you were you were uh, you were in a moment of flux and of transition. So I'm just curious, uh, where are you at? Where's the motivation for continually transforming? Is it is the fire still bright? Have you gained momentum? Do you feel like there's there's a there's positive reinforcement? Some small wins along the way. You know, have you gotten the clarity that you were seeking? Like, update me, man. So thank you for challenging me with a question first. Usually it's the other way around, but it is a great question nonetheless. For me, we and we were just talking about this, which was that opportunity cost of the moments of pursuing almost in a degree what I believe is the most authentic self, you know, which is a, has a version of definitions on its own. But for me, it's, that ability to understand, introspect, and extract from the moments that we have in life. What do I actually enjoy? Where do I actually feel like my purpose is being met? And not from a measure of what other people measure as success, not from an output of that. And that's a hard thing to distill. Yeah. But from being able to look inward and say, is this truly what I want? Is this truly how I like pursuing something? And I feel like I have some of the best conversations in like this, but that's what I've learned to love to extract from life is I like gloves off, vulnerable, authentic conversations where you can actually be engaged and be able to learn from someone and truly digest the words that they're saying, almost like there's an aura that's coming out in the conversation. 
obviously feel like that with you all the time when we've talked, especially recently, but also in my experience is with my jobs and my work, that's what I feel like I've been able to say, okay, what's the good in this and extract it from that, so to speak. So long way to answer your question, but it's, I feel like I'm much more in pursuit of that. And a lot of it is because of things like this. Yeah. Frankly. And it's actually what I admire. One of the things I admire about you the most, which is you've discussed with me the depth and the transitions you've made, whether it's a physical move of a job or a mental move in terms of introspection. And I've always been curious for you how you've been able to, it seems like, now correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like from the outside, making those transitions with a lot of ease. And I mean ease not because it's just okay, I'm ready to do it because, and I don't want to answer it for you, but it sounds like you just value that introspection, those instincts, those gut feelings a lot. How, if you think about the transition, for example, from Ottawa to Montreal or becoming a teacher to going to, I forget the name of it, but you spoke about your experience with teaching Inuit, basically incarcerated individuals as they come out and, and helping them there. Like, how do you do those 180s? How do you actually have the courage to do them in the moments before, during, and after? That's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of luck along the way, not in terms of maybe a little bit in terms of how the, the, the decisions have worked out, but more so of the practice of introspecting. Like, I think I'm lucky it's just come naturally. I don't really know how it started, to be honest. But there's this, like, concept of a seat of awareness. Like, mm. some people... I would like to believe everyone has a seat of awareness, but I think some people actually do have this seed of being able to introspect, being able to have a reflective practice ongoing, like, that underlies or, or that coats their their entire existence. And some people don't. Within the people that do have a seed of awareness, some people, uh, it flowers immediately when they're born, perhaps. But at least for me, it felt like it was maybe, <laughs> it was this flower was like struggling, but it was very much still present when I was, uh, let's just say maybe until 21 before I left consulting. But definitely it was like a flower that was struggling to survive but was relentless to survive. When I was in consulting, there was a dramatic tension to live authentically and that there was more to life than this sort of mundane existence. I think there's this, it's almost like a, a voice within or a or power within that's, I think it, it is there for a lot of people and the ability to actually listen to it is what matters. It's not if the voice is there, it's the ability to actually listen to it. I think for some people, maybe the voice isn't even there, like I said, they don't even have the seed of awareness, but how do you then cultivate the, the, the seed of awareness so that it grows and it grows? I think I'm just lucky that it even existed in the first place. And that first inkling of just noticing that it's even there, it starts to then kind of catch fire or build momentum like a snowball effect. So, all that to be said, I think it's a it's a daily practice, man. Mm. It's like a, we have these neural pathways in our brain. And for me to go into a conversation and be excited to connect and ask certain questions, the certain questions that I ask is simply because it's been reinforced. 
and it makes me feel good. It, feel, it gives me a sense of connectedness or vulnerability or intimacy with the other person. And then there's this positive reinforcement. And then I'm going to ask that, therefore, probably more likely the next time again. And then more likely and more likely. And so there's this highway that kind of becomes concretized. That is kind of like the practice on a daily basis. All the things that I'm asking myself, the ability to really dial into my body and understand what makes me feel a certain way. It's not like a forceful activity. It's just now become kind of habitual. Is it? We were talking about this just before this. Do you think it's like a drug to you at all? We talked about drugs without being drugs in the yeah. sense of physical, the substance, the physical supplementation of what it does to your body, but a, yeah. a task being a drug almost. Do you feel like that it's become that for you? What kind of task? The introspective, the, oh, in terms of a reliance on it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Translation. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think, I guess it's so, it's so woven into me that it doesn't really even feel like a reliance. It feels like a part of my being. I think it's just, a, yeah, it, feel, it feels like a way of living. But to kind of weave back to the, the first question you asked to answer it directly, I think the way very strong decisions are made of beginning, you know, my own coaching practice instead of sticking with the coaching practice I have within a job or to choose to have a kid, it, it seems kind of like very sudden, but it's a constant compounding wisdom or awareness within myself that is happening on a daily basis then allows me to seemingly 180 just click into a decision and almost be spontaneous on the surface. But it's been several data points over multiple months or years in some cases where it now I just like I'm constantly aware of like the data or the, the, the spreadsheet, you know? Yeah, you think of it from a statistical point of view, yeah. statistical analyses, yeah. you're literally just increasing your sample size. Exactly. Outrageously. Yeah. And I actually wrote about this, I think yesterday, which is even the largest of sample sizes can create facts that we perceive, but they, even those facts can be disproved in time. But it doesn't mean you're not giving yourself the highest probability of what you maybe know to be true by doing that introspection on a daily basis. Do you think that's fair to say? Or? Yeah, that's a cool analogy because I think the hardest thing is when you have tons of lived experience before a transformation mm -hmm. that that you want to break from. You have a certain way of living that is is unhealthy or unsuitable for what you think you know you want out of life. Yet there's this like inertia or you're so anchored in the the past lived experiences. How do you break from that? While if you just start creating new data that's very different, the trend line drastically shifts. The hardest thing though is to create the new data and that comes from new behaviors, new actions that are completely unattached to what was done before. And I think that's only possible in like a in, a in a state of meditation when you're aware of why are you talking to your parent a certain way when you've left home for a while but you come back for the holidays or you come back for a birthday and you've slotted back into this kind of parent-child dynamic a lot of that is unconscious but if we can become conscious of it and instead of snapping at your parent you all of a sudden just lend a listening ear and you're non-reactive then you see how the parent shifts and that parent responding to you now is different because you your input was different 
and then it's a beautiful cycle. And you're getting a new sample size. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's exactly it. And then you're now all of a sudden there's that positive reinforcement or motivation of, well, that feels good. But again, the reason, the only way to pick up on that, how good it makes you feel is to really dial into your body. But I do want to emphasize again, it's not a forceful activity. I think that's where it's a really curious kind of uh, loose type of flow of introspection. It's not, you know, this very analytical, hardcore, you're constantly in yourself instead of actually immersed and in touch with reality. It's, uh, but to do, to do that, it's similar to, you know, what Marie Kondo has kind of done in terms of the wave of decluttering and minimalism. It's that on a mental level. So it's, oh, you know, you had this conflict with your dad since your parents divorced. If you haven't apologized uh, to him or you haven't, well, maybe probably the other way around, you haven't forgiven him, then there's this mental baggage. You have to get rid of that baggage to be able to then, you know, be silent and quiet in your mind to have a silent and quiet mind, to then be able to actually notice how it makes you feel to be fully hydrated in the morning with water versus unhydrated. Those small little shifts make a big difference. To be able to perform at a certain level, not necessarily in a, in a purely productive sense, like in, in terms of a capitalist environment, but if you want to be optimally yourself and however you define that, there reaches a point to be a top performer where these one, two percent differences, they make a big difference. Like if I just did not have the liter of water this morning that I had, I probably have some level of brain fog that becomes noticeable when I'm just really used to functioning at a high level. So when you mention reliance, I think there maybe is actually a, an uncomfortableness and perhaps a reliance on being my highest functioning self. But the way I like to frame it is that I've just become sensitive to it now, you know, like for New Year's that is a couple of days away, I'm most likely going to kind of tuck her in at home at around maybe 10 p.m. because I just know how much it affects me because I've now I've felt the effects. I think a lot of people don't feel the effects, so they continue to not just on New Year's, but really, frankly, every weekend to stay up past midnight and then their circadian rhythm might be off, and maybe that works for them. But for me, I noticed that drastically affects my energy level, my mood, which then of course affects pretty much everything else I do when I'm awake in my life. And then there, it's very limiting. But if I flip that, all of a sudden there's this, this, this world of abundance that can be created of wealth. Wealth not in terms of financial possibilities, but just in terms of pure, purely the number of possibilities that can exist that you've created. Incredible, you mentioned a couple of things. One was meditation, and I definitely wanna go in deeper in that in a moment. But before that, it was kind of the theme of that whole story you depicted there, but you talked about the friction, and almost as if the friction is necessary in order to be able to observe it to get to those subsequent steps. Would you say for you in the moments of friction, so when you were consulting, it sounded like when this sort of seed was recognized that you maybe already had and you're grateful for, do you see that as sort of the the turning point, if you will, of, of that frictional, and do you see that as a necessary friction for you that had to happen in order to go through things subsequently after and go down the journey that you have of introspection? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, and asking, sorry, and asking what's the good in this as an example, um, even in the moments 
Because in those moments, I'm going to guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to guess that you didn't feel like, oh, hey, I have a new, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I'm a world-class meditator or something now, right? Or I'm a daily meditator, right? You never probably thought that possible, I'm going to guess, in those moments. But mm -hmm. it was born then, mm -hmm. is what it sounds like. Yeah, I was absolutely born in those moments. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a friction. I mean, I don't I don't know what it's like to be in a frictionless state constantly. I don't. I've never experienced that. Maybe some people have. For me, the way I've seen it and I've heard from others is that there's always going to be a friction, but it's how you respond to the friction. Or friction is one way to put it. Another way to put it is the internal conflict or gap that arises when you feel maybe out of place. So for me, I don't, again, I think there's a certain degree of luck. I don't really know where that came from, but in that moment where there was a conflict internally of management consulting is not resonating with me, I can't see the rest of my existence being this, of just doing this on a daily basis. I think what usually arises as soon as there's that friction between what I'm feeling is off and what is my reality, what is, when there's that friction in between, instead of getting curious and understanding why is that friction? What, what would it, how do we define that? Like, let's explore that, let's get more granular. I think what immediately happens is a, is a fear state of, well, this is now, fear of what? It's a fear of certainty or lack thereof, and it's a fear of security being jeopardized as well. And then we are driven immediately to kind of very literally what we do in, you know with illnesses we, we put a band-aid right away like let's heal it right away instead of letting it naturally unfold and do what it kind of needs to do of course there's a time and place for band-aids but in this context it's like i could have very well and i think i did initially of like i should i actually what i i ought to do and what i should be doing is continue to pursue this career this is the right thing to do now, I've learned that well, right thing to do according to who, because there is no absolute right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And what was, I was lacking, and I eventually got to develop because of that friction, like you said, kind of needs to exist. It'll, it was a gateway for me to develop my own languaging around, well, what is right or wrong? What is success for me? What is even my, what is my set of core values? I never even knew what those words meant, let alone what the core values were. So all of that kind of happened in my early 20s. And it's because of just innately not being fearful of, well, what happens if I don't do consulting? What happens now to the financial security I need for retirement to afford a certain lifestyle? That was completely open-ended. I think there was a, a curiosity and a, and a freeing kind of exploring type mentality of like, well, what happens if I don't have that money? What happens if I am a janitor? And I've read certain books at that time I was reading, I think, the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. What happens if, you know, I'm just a janitor and I can deeply enjoy being a janitor and, and I enjoy the movement of it. That's a completely different lifestyle. I don't know if that is that right, is that wrong? So there's this curiosity and this learning of, of really questioning all my assumptions that then allowed me to develop my own definition of what I believe in and what I think is, is valuable or worth pursuing which is continually being refined and adjusting, right? That That's not static. Like that has changed in the last two years dramatically again. So you actually were just, you almost put a pen on what I was about to say, which was 
It sounds like that friction is something, well, you said would never go away. That friction sense would make sense. But even for you in that moment while you were consulting, I know the friction is separate from fear, but is it fair to say for you, do you believe that that friction, or sorry, rather not the friction, but the fear, that innate fear that we may originally feel, like you said, and I totally agree with a lot of us in society when we have those moments, is that something that you think will ever go away or is it more just turning the volume down on that and letting what what rule most of the days being okay, that curiosity, that sense of fulfillment, um, the introspection. And it leads, it's gonna lead me to another question that's based <laughs> on absolution, like all yeah. or nothing, but yeah. do you think that fear can ever go away? It's interesting because I think it is a matter of, of trust. If we play it out, if, if, I, if I was conventional on what I would have been afraid of within consulting, uh, it, consulting was just a representation. It's like, can, do I have enough of a salary to just like be well off enough to basically just survive and have pleasure in my life? Okay. By staying in consulting, the answer is yes. However, the fear of if I lo- leave consulting, now that's being jeopardized, it's a matter of like, what do you fill that cavity or that open space with now? And if there's this actually like deep curiosity for just deep curiosity period, not just for yourself, but for the world around you, I think it's inevitable that you're going to learn uh, skills that are meaningful, that are valuable. And if that curiosity maintains its course and that's a core of your being, then you're just going to get really good at something that is, again, meaningful and valuable and the money will come. So the irony is what keeps us away from that world of wealth is in fact the fear of the financial security disappearing. But what better way to to actually make sure that you're going to actually have the money flowing than to build valuable, unique skills in something. The only way to do that is to actually break free from the mold. What happens is when we're afraid, we stay to the conventional mold. The conventional mold, there's nothing unique or valuable there. We're part of the machine of, you know, let's say skilled workers. It's very hard to innovate if you're a lawyer and you just try to be a really just a little bit of a better lawyer than the other lawyer versus you look at law and you're very curious about how law can be programmed and all of a sudden you leverage AI for law. Now you've developed not only a unique skill set, possibly probably a unique product, and now the money's going to come. And worst case, you actually create a startup, it fails. You're now hireable though. You're hireable by whoever has succeeded in that space because clearly it's it's something that is is part of our future. And again, you, you make the salary that you were worried about was not going to come if you just leave this career as a lawyer. But it's this deep curiosity, this sense of lifelong learning that is in fact almost in a very ironic way the, the closest guarantee that you're going to come to of having that financial security. And of course, a lot of fulfillment is on that path as well. So it seems like a win-win. The limiting factor is the fear, Mm. is the trust of, you have to take the first step because none of that is known. Everything I just said is like, that's only going to happen once you do take that step. But as you're on a journey and you're starting your transformation, there's nothing, there's no proof. There is no data. Again, we're to go back to the data. There's no, if you look back at the data, there's nothing to suggest any of this is ever going to happen. You got to create the data. 
and what we see as fact is only the fact of today and our previous data, exactly. but it doesn't mean, again, it can't be disproved based on future sample sets or yeah. something, yeah. right? I think underlying all this is a, is a deep, being deeply familiar with and comfortable with uncertainty because that is, you know, I did a 10 day meditation course, which we haven't talked about yet before we'll get there. the review. Yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a constant messaging. It was, it was a Vipassana, uh, meditation course. And part of that school of thought is impermanence is like just a, one of the key laws of our, of our universe. Things are always going to change. Nothing stays the same. That is like a guarantee. Yet what we're chasing, what the ego chases, because the ego wants stability, it wants security, it feels threatened. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just a kind of irrational a lot of times. If it's chasing stability and security, but our world is the opposite of that, is an absence of that, then we're in an internal now synthetic friction. Right, so there's some frictions that can exist that in terms of like, you talk to me, I'm not maybe you know used to your style of talking or you have a different body language that I'm, I'm used to from other people I've ever talked to. You can call that a friction state. But then again, if I'm curious to it, I can learn from your body language. I'm open and receptive to it. Now there's this, the friction is alleviated. But there's another whole level of, I would call friction or unnecessary suffering that comes from when we are trying to click on to stability and security of, you know, I am Atik, I am a rock climber. I am definitely not a comedian, but I have friends that are like <laughs> comedians, right? And part of their identity is I am a comedian, but they want to leave comedy. Well, how do you leave comedy? Or in my case, you know, I was a management consultant. Whoever's listening to this, maybe you're a professional in some certain regard or you're a banker. It's like, well, that, that's just who I am right? Or my podcast host. Now, when you don't want to do that anymore because you've outgrown it, what's happened is you actually see yourself as a static being, but biologically you've dramatically changed. You know, I forget the stat, you know, biologically we renew, but forget about biologically, psychologically, you're very different than two years ago. Usually is radically different. So the illusion of the name is that, well, my name is still Kevin. So I'm this, but, but you're not Kevin from two years ago. Right? It's like we almost need a new name every, definitely every year, but maybe even every month because we've changed. And what the ego wants is stability and security. That keeps us, that creates this friction or this gap from being able to actually be creative and pursue new uncertain uh, opportunities or possibilities. Well, wonderfully said. It's a great preface. I want to actually read you something. This is verbatim from my journal. Just And... I want to tie this in with absolution-based thinking and what you believe are the dangers of it. So don't let this be a bias to your answer, please. Like interrogate it, make it incorrect or whatever you believe. I'll do my best. But it's about labels and character. Labels are simply thought to give us understanding. Understand that what they truly give us is prejudices without observation. As often thought in faithful cultures, no one or nothing is good or bad. These moments that allow your programming to give into label making are the moments you allow someone else to shape your life for you, to rob you of the freedom of choice. So I want to tie that Is in. Is that how you journal? You just write in poems, like naturally? Because that was very poetic. Is that like a, did that just come naturally to yeah, you? Yeah, that's how I write Jeez. normally. 
Well, that's why I love writing as a medium and as a form of expression. That's frankly. a gift. Oh, thank you very much. I, I want to tie that in with something you mentioned, which was thinking in absolution. So I am Kevin. You are Attic. Identity formation like that, thinking that we have to be stuck in that. This person is good. This person I see did one good act, so that I'm going to define that as a whole character. Yeah. So I'm prefacing the question right a lot. Again, emphasize, don't bias your answer that way, hopefully. But what do you think are the dangers of absolution-based thinking Yeah. in our society? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a good question related to you know, what we just closed up with. What better, and I, and I think it makes sense to have labels, categories, these kind of conventions to be able to communicate abstractly. So as humans, we communicate language. through ideas. Language is super important, but there's it, there's like a latency, you know, or like a it's not completely in sync. So when I say tree, whatever you see in your head is probably different than the tree I'm seeing in my head. So that's where the the conventions or the labels of categories start falling apart. In terms of the communication, there's actually a gap. That's one thing. But it makes sense, right? Cognitively, if I now want to close that gap and I don't want to use the word tree and I just start describing what a tree is, mm-hmm. we'd be here all day. Yeah. You know, and so it's cool. It's, it's a shortcut. But where I think where it falls apart is, again, the, the lack of curiosity in between. And so th- this plays directly into the ego, I think, is it's static. Right. If we have an absolute understanding, right? So, so even, you know, I've studied different forms of belief systems of, of philosophical kind of schools of thought. And at one point I, I kind of thought, and I think a lot of, you know, religious or spiritual people do have this idea of, well, sure, you know, you're entitled and, and we have different ideas of good or bad, but really this is certainly good like it's certainly good to meditate every day and i I just think that yeah that's absolutely false because that suggests that everyone is the same everyone has certain tendencies you know i was actually i just learned from there's this researcher at at brown university there's actually a lot of adverse effects for for meditation and almost 30 40 percent of the population at least in america has an adverse event or effect with meditation, the first time meditating, which is, that, that's debatable as to how you define that and stuff, and she's exploring that, but she doesn't meditate anymore. And she, instead, she has a, a meditative practice around cooking or hiking or, or carpentry. So there's different forms, right? And we have different temperaments. Some people are calm and collected just out of the gate, and meditation comes naturally. For some people, they're extremely kinesthetic, you know, and there's actually maybe a better vehicle for them to be in touch with reality. So I, I think absolute is is a bit of a, a trap. Now, I think there's a happy medium because if speaking in absolute, if we actually just went a little bit meta and we're like, mm-hmm. absolute is wrong, well, that is actually an absolute. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's like, again, the daily practice, it's like, this is why I think for me, I really value time. It's like these, all these kind of unspoken things that a lot of people don't see under the hood of what is happening in the operating system, at least for me. It's like, in order to be seamless and to kind of reduce that friction state with reality, it's like you gotta 
actually kind of update this constantly. You know, if what what is my definition of success, or who who am I? I don't. I think one. You know, a lot of Buddhism is like you have no self. Let me really focus on having no self, and that 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 is actually the most pure or real state. I don't know if that's the way we can function happily and prosperly, and if that's a word in modern society. You know, I I do think it makes sense to be able to articulate and understand within yourself but to others who you actually are in this moment but emphasis on this moment mm. you know and to update who i am this moment versus next moment versus last moment that is a constant reflective practice that happens on a daily basis and that requires time and space it's almost as if the way you're describing it curiosity and introspection although to very congruent although maybe not exactly the same our skills we see curiosity as something like a childlike wonder that we maybe are robbed of because of the culturing or whatever it is that we've had of, of recently and we try to get back to that but it almost seems like those those things were biological at birth as an example yeah the skill or the art of curiosity mm-hmm. but it seems like it's something that we can't just tap into necessarily on command unless we practice how to do that yeah you think that's fair to say i have a different perspective and this is just like an n of one i i i this is just on my own experience but the way i see it is at least curiosity it's not about how to gain it or how to do it i think it's actually a process a negative process or a process of negation or removal I actually kind of look at like, think about all the conditioning we have, you know, if like whatever religion you've grown up in, whatever culture you've grown up in, the neighborhood you're in, the social media algorithm that you're kind of part of by chance, the people that have been in your life in terms of role models or what you've seen as, as a positive role model, though, according to your person, all these are kind of lenses. And if you add enough lenses, because each of these lenses has a bit of subjectivity in it, so it's not empty. It's not completely, there's a level of opinion in it. So a little bit of subjectivity multiplied by 10 lenses with our conditioning, all of a sudden you actually don't see reality very clearly. So I actually think it's a process of removing lenses. And we're just talking about normal, but but I think actually a lot of us do possess, I'm not gonna say fortunately or unfortunately, but just the reality of traumatic events or adverse childhood experiences those are lenses as well. And I think it's really hard to get curious on the most mild version of average level of ADHD of being able to be curious. It's like, well, what, you know, what is it that is diffusing your attention in the first place? And I'm no psychologist, but perhaps it's that you don't feel safe and secure in this particular environment because of, you know, how white the, the lights are. And, you know, it triggers a certain memory of like when you were in a basement, when you were in a kid and something negative happened. Yeah. And so if you're attuned to that, I think that's where there has to be some sort of meditative practice, because once you become attuned to that, you start removing layers or lenses and then you can actually actually just be as is. And I think like you said, our natural state is curiosity. So I actually don't know if it's a skill. I wonder if I wonder if it's just the way we actually are are defaulted 
but then there's these other it's, things. It's that almost as if it's robbed from us the moment we come into the world. Yeah. And it's not to place blame necessarily on, on others no. or caretakers or whoever they are, but that's I, a really interesting way to look at it. I, I um, wonder if we can, maybe the lifelong journey, maybe there's multiple purposes, but one could argue that a, a purpose is for us to return to that state you know that wow. original state and the, the whole our whole life is a is a working to get to that state not necessarily something to achieve but that is the path of learning that maybe is most most fruitful and that's the guiding force that you're always going to be in perhaps like a, a positive direction if you go that way not to talk in absolutes again but <laughs> yeah now that yeah. i entered that yeah. in, we have to be careful <laughs> we have to rebuttal everything that's yeah. Thank you very much for spending time with me on the Reflect On podcast today. If you found this episode enjoyable or inspiring, please share it with those who it may help and leave a positive review so that we can grow together. Until next time, reflect onward and keep moving forward.